Warning, what you are about to hear is born of long years of deep friendship, shared experience, brutal honesty, and the reconciling grace of Jesus Christ. Please, do not walk up to the first black or white person you know and start this sort of banter. It will not end well. It's good to see you again. Um, it's great to have the two of you all uh, in the room and to be able to have this conversation, the four of us. Uh, I've been looking forward to this. Uh, I was telling uh, Robbie beforehand that um, the two of you are in the small list of intellects who are really piquing my interest now, um, who are, I think, doing work that is calling us to upset the status quo, um, which is something I think that we the people are loath to do. Um, and I think it's something that betrays the very spirit of what makes a democracy great, right? If, 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 if we can't consider upsetting the status quo um, and be regularly considering things that call us to upset the status quo, um, how well are we um, at forging a more perfect union, right? Um, and so the opportunity to have this conversation, right? It's like, you know, you know, Case and I, we talk about this type of stuff all the time. Like what, you know, what will it take? You know, when we talk about racial heresy, um, you know, to, to have these heretical conversations, because these are conversations that you generally cannot have, you know, you're not, you're not supposed to talk this way as an American, as a Christian, synonymously using those terms, right? Um, because they're meant to be synonymous. Um, and so you, you can't really have these conversations, especially as they pertain to matters of race. And so we, we want to have heretical conversations, right? Um, and, you know, Case actually talks about some things with, with some excommunication and, 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 and things of that nature that I want to talk about as well. And I'm doing some work now. I find myself doing some work now with um, diocesan bishops and their staff, um, really diving into um, these issues of white supremacy, right? And so I tell people, I'm like, if you haven't at least been familiar with Robin's work or Robbie's work, it's probably not time to work with me because mm -hmm. I start from the framework that white supremacy exists, that, that I start from the framework that you've been white too long mm -hmm. and we need to deconstruct this. So if you can't, and if you can't handle that, like I was telling Robbie earlier before we, before you connected, like you have to engage Robin's work before you can really handle Robbie's work, right? Because you can't handle anyone telling you that you are white too long if you haven't dealt with your fragility or at least become aware of your fragility so that you can mm -hmm. hear that and receive that for what it's worth, right? And so, go ahead, brother, go ahead, brother, go ahead, brother, okay. feel free to interrupt me. That's actually kind of one of my, one of my first questions for, for both of you, welcome, good to see you again, um, is I, I'm curious what you all see in each other's work, right? I, I feel like society has, has, as much as it has been willing to receive it, has received, um, uh, Robbie, your work kind of at the macro level, like, you know, statistics, and suddenly if there are numbers attached to it, then it must be this broad thing. And, and I, I, I feel like a lot of people, you know, and I've used your book in, in the church and in book groups and things, people take that and they and they arrow it just to the personal. 
um, yet both of you addressed the macro and the micro. And I, I'm curious, um, maybe Robin, to, to start with you, how you see um, how you see your work reflected in the in the statistical now that that we've got. Um, and then Robbie, kind of flip that if if you guys go micro macro for us. Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. And that was high praise indeed, Father Jabriel, to say that uh, if they haven't engaged with my work, then they're not engaging with you. That is a deep honor. Um, and I'm assuming we're all on first name basis and that um, I shall proceed that way. What I see the connections, I mean, we're both speaking truth to power from within um that power position um i i think robbie's work is is radical <laughs> and revolutionary that in some ways we could say in in the sense of evangelicalism um i'm not going to say that right evangelicalism <laughs> <laughs> that is the belly of the beast of white supremacy um and to go to be a member of that and to go in there and and name that is very, very radical, and I'm sure not without a very high price. Uh, so I, I see Robbie's work um, in, in a sense, applying the, the analysis that I offer to a very specific institution and one that is so clearly seeped in white supremacy, rooted in white supremacy, at the same time, one of the most deeply denied um, mm, in terms mm. of that, of those roots. So that's a, that's my opening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks. Uh, I'm so honored to be here. And, and Robin, I'm, I'm so glad to meet you in person for the first time um, here. I mean, I'm indebted uh, to your work as, as we all are. Um, you know, and I'll, I'll say that uh, I said this before you got on, um, but I mean, we're, we're indebted uh, to really a vocabulary um, that mm -hmm. is now in common use um, that, that, that you're largely responsible for creating um, and giving us language, I think, to talk about the unspeakable um, is mm -hmm. such a huge part of the battle uh, here, because as, as you've written and, and, you know, we all have experienced, I mean, so much of what we're, we're fighting here is to make the invisible visible mm -hmm. so that we can mm -hmm. deal with it. Right. Um, right. And, and I, I think that that's that's been such a gift um, because one of the biggest things, um, you know, that I think we've all encountered working in white spaces, whether it's kind of non-religious spaces or, or religious spaces, you know, is is the defensive reaction. And, and I, I, you know, I think your work has just gone so straight at that in a way that um, uh, uh, disarms it, um, you know, that, that that makes a conversation even possible. I, I think that's been such the gift um, uh, for all of us. And, you know, so I, I think that's constantly, even if I'm starting at statistics and kind of saying, okay, let's look at kind of where, uh, you know, the belly of the beast is, is right. I mean, because, you know, we don't get slavery, we don't get uh, Jim Crow segregation, we don't get the criminal justice system that we have without its legitimization uh, on moral grounds, right? And one of the chief ways that it has been morally justified is with christian concepts and christian people and christian and by christian churches that have perpetuated a worldview uh in which these kinds of inequalities and um and where white supremacy makes sense um and not only makes sense but um is grounded 
in the very way that God created the world and intends for humans to be in society together, right? It was part of a, a divinely justified worldview. And I, I think that's been the most powerful mm-hmm. piece of it. And I think one of the reasons why I kind of use the statistics to kind of show how deeply it's grounded there um, is, is because that really has been uh, it, its fundamental legitimizing uh, of force. And, you know, if we're going to dismantle it, that's going, that those pieces are going to have to, uh, be held up to the light, um, and there's going to have to be a kind of serious deconstructive move made there. And and you know, still I, I invoke Robin your work all the time uh, because as soon as I sort of show the statistics and it gets down to the kind of level of a congregation or um, a synagogue or a church kind of working in this space, there is this initial hmm. you know defensiveness, right? That and that, that is all about a kind of you know fragility and a, and a kind of rejection of having. Uh, this this conversation um, that you know even when the statistics are right in front of them saying yeah you know it's it's our problem yeah um, and I think you you have a particular challenge in in that um, unlike the days of enslavement and Jim Crow uh, white Christians can't come out and say that this is God's plan and that this is what mm. you know this is what we're supposed to be doing, but they can move into the spiritual plane. They can use colorblindness to say, but, you know, out in, on the spiritual plane, we are all one. We're all Mm -hmm. God's children. And I'm constantly having to say, and we don't live on the spiritual plane. We live on the physical plane in the here and now in a society that is deeply separate and unequal by race. And if we want to usher in, (laughs) <laughs> that place where it truly doesn't matter, then we have to address how it does matter in the here and now where we are. Um, and, and the other thing I just want to add is white fragility. I just want to reinforce the fragility is in the lack of stamina, the inability to endure the, the tiniest challenge. Of course, it's not, it's not fragile at all in the um, weight of, what's behind it, right? The weight of legal authority and institutional control and history. Mm -hmm. So it functions as an incredibly powerful means of everyday white racial control. Mm -hmm. But I do want to pull up a thread. I always like to go to the places that are hardest to admit that it's not just that we um, don't have the capacity. It's that we have internalized the deep message of white superiority. Right. I mean, we have to sit in that place and look straight on is that we do feel superior and we do feel entitled to have what we have and to rule the way that we rule. And so much of what we're doing is trying to not name or yeah yeah and you know that, that, that it's, it's, it's interesting that you that you say that right and um because i was thinking about this earlier as we talk about america is back right and and and, and we bring this from like you said the practical plan that we lived on robin and um mm. i don't like this framing so i'm gonna go back here but we talk about america being back and i see that and i want to know if i'm overreaching right but i see that as the fragility about which we're speaking, right? So here it is, we just had this tremendous flare up of white supremacist vitriol. Mm-hmm. And rather than remove the log from our own eye, 
we are back and we're going to make proclamations on the world stage about what is human rights and what is democracy and what is freedom and what are all of these values. And you see everybody coalescing along with that. But without addressing these things that have resulted in this flare up, what are we back to? It seems like we are back to holding on to the faith of our fathers rather than being back to find being back to the people that are in search of a better way. And it seems to me like that's the fragility at work that says, I don't want to look at who I've become. Let me cast a light somewhere else. Let me cast my gaze somewhere else. Something that we can all agree is bad. Look, it's bad over there. And now we'll all spend our time looking over there while not dealing with what's going on here because of what what's going on here says about who we are. And I was wondering what you all think then with this backdrop, what has to happen for white folks to prioritize this work? And here's what I mean by this. When you talk about, you know, white Christianity, Robbie, as being, you know, the, the, the breeding ground for all of this stuff, right? You can see, you know, Western Protestantism's fingerprints, footprints all over everything that's formed in Western civilization. When you look at that, so now that white, so now white supremacy is pervasive. It's all, it's through everywhere. Mm -hmm. And what white fragility seems to want to do is compartmentalize, right? And so I notice when I ask, when I ask groups that I'm working with, what is it, what has to happen for you to prioritize this work? They feel insulted because we're doing the work. And I understand what's going on. It's one of the issues that you're concerned about. And so you're going to deal with race and you're going to deal with this, but your bandwidth for race is filled up because I have all these other issues that I need to deal with as well. And yes, you can't say that I don't care about race. I do care about this racism stuff. But don't you see there's all these other issues that I need to deal with? When the reality is what white supremacy has done has been pervasive healthcare, immigration, you know, civil rights, uh, you name it. It's, it's, it's spread its tentacles, but somehow in the solution, the best we can muster up is a compartmentalized approach that says we're going to deal with this isolated thing and it doesn't become a priority. So I'm wondering what do you all think has to happen for white folks to transcend that fragility to realize the implications of being white too long? Well, you know, I'll start with, I mean, where I, where I end the book um, actually is that I, I think that, and I do think this is dawning on some, you know, white Christian, uh, in, in white Christian circles is, you know, really um, idea I've taken, you know, from a, a number of African-American writers, you know, who have been saying this for some time, it's not new, but I think if you ask what it'll take, I think part of what it takes is that there's not just an external obligation to heal wrongs that have been done or to repair the damage from wrongs that have been done that is certainly important but i, I honestly think i mean there's always self-interest that's it, it that drives deep commitment right um and i and but i think there is a self-interest angle here and that is that i think white christians in particular i'll speak from that since that's kind of where i my research is focused 
um, are only beginning to realize the damage that they've done to themselves uh, by harboring uh, a, a white supremacist worldview and putting forward a white supremacist theology, right? That it doesn't just do damage to people outside their walls, but it, it um, I mean, Baldwin, you know, talks about, um, as does Du Bois, uh, talks about white supremacy as a, as a, a form of mental illness, a, a kind of madness, right, that distorts everything around us. Um, so even if you're white, right, if you want to live in the world rightly, if you want to be in right relationship with God, if you want to be in right relationship with your fellow human beings, you can't do that, right, if you're shot through with an unacknowledged and unconscious uh, version of white supremacy, uh, which is the very thing that we inherit if we don't very directly and consciously begin, at least begin the journey of trying to be aware of that and, and to deconstruct it. Hmm. Hmm. Oh, I, everything you're all saying is so rich. I've got all kinds of notes and then, you know, they make sense in a moment and then you move to something else really juicy. But I just had this flash in my head. Well, it would help if we stopped representing God as white. So just like stop, <laughs> um, you know, my whole life as a child growing up, you know, I looked at images of God and Jesus and Mary uh, as white. And that operated at a very deep level on my sense of of myself on my own racial identity and all the more powerful because it was completely unnoticed or unrecognized. I didn't look at those images and think God is white. Um, and, and that's part of its power. And I don't know in uh, God's case, but I do know that Jesus and Mary were not white. Um, so I always, there's a question that's never failed me um, in my efforts to unpack how this works. How do we keep getting these outcomes at the same time that we claim to want something different. And that question is, is just simply, how does it function when we um, say, well, we've got all these other issues as if uh, systemic racism, white supremacy wasn't the, the foundation of every other issue, right? As if you could ever address any of those issues without fundamentally addressing white supremacy. Right. So this, this idea that it's off to the side or it's a, it's an extra or special interest, uh, how does that function? Well, beautifully to protect it. And, you know, we're, we're invested in protecting it. Let, again, let's be honest. White people are invested in the racist status quo for, for lots of reasons. Um, and I think it's unfortunate, but I do think we have to see it as in our own best interests. So a couple things have to happen there. One is, it's a little more abstract, but it's like you almost have to un, un dismantle your very identity to the core and rebuild it. Because even before I took my first breath, as my mother carried me in pregnancy, the forces of race were operating on, on us. Mm -hmm. So that while I wasn't born racist, I was cooked, if you will, um, in a context in which the forces of racism shaped how I came out, shaped the fact that we could literally predict whether my mother and I were going to survive my birth. Um, and it's been operating on me from every breath since. And so we kind of have to just start at the beginning and try to rebuild that. And I don't think we can get there from the current paradigm, right, which defines mm -hmm. racism a racist as an individual who consciously doesn't like people based on race. Um, and the, and the, the scarcity model, you add, add the scarcity model of capitalism mm -hmm. and this idea that if I 
share with you, I'm giving up something. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. um, I think that the movement, while I feel a little impatient with having to appeal to white people by their own, in, you know, self-interest, and I, I'm going to hang on to um, confronting us with uh, the things that I've just said, I think the movement is, is going in the direction in terms of strategy to help white people see that it's in their best interest. In other words, we'd probably have universal health care right now if it wasn't for uh, white racial resentment about sharing. We'd probably have accessible education. And Heather McGee's new book, The Sum of Us, where she uses the analogy of the swimming pool, right? That uh, during the gym, following the Jim Crow South, uh, when parks and public spaces were ordered to integrate, rather than do that, they literally cemented in the swimming pools and closed the public parks so that nobody got to have access to those things if it meant that somebody that you saw inferior to you was going to have to have access. Um, so that, that's another piece is appealing to um, self-interest unfortunately. Mm. <laughs> Can I just follow one real quick? I know we get other places to go, but I'm with Rob and I've got so many neurons to go firing here. Um, but, you know, I'll, given that we're, we're in a sort of, you know, we got uh, two priests we're talking to here, um, you know, we're headed toward Easter, right? And there's kind of two times, I think, in the Christian calendar when Christians very clearly envision Jesus and God. One is Christmas and then nativity scenes and the other is Easter with resurrection, right? Where we're kind of called on to kind of think about sort of the embodied Jesus. And I, I think it's in vitally important, right? That, that's exactly right. That we, that we not think of that resurrected Jesus as white. Um, you know, I include in my book um, uh, a, a, a sketch from Dylan Roof, right? Who murdered nine African-Americans at church. Um, and one of the things he sketched in his journal while he was awaiting trial were all these Christian symbols, um, including a full page sketch of a white Jesus emerging from the tomb at the same time he's writing on white Christians to stand up and be a warrior's religion, right? And to start a race war um, uh, in, in this country. Like it fits so comfortably in that worldview, that murderous worldview of his. And, and it, it's a, time for us, right in front of us, right? To think of a brown-skinned Jesus and not a white Jesus, um, either on the cross or coming out of the tomb. And I think particularly, if to speak theologically, that the resurrected Jesus can't be white, right? Um, that resurrected Jesus um, matters, right? How, how we think about who that is and what that represents uh, for, for, for humankind. And then the other piece, I'll just kind of, uh, the kind of other theological note that was um, rolling around my head, Robin, as you were talking about, this very powerful way of thinking about the forces that were in play, even as you were carried in your mother's womb, right? And mm -hmm. to the family, all of us were born into, um, and, and to some statistician, you absolutely can. All you need to know is somebody's zip code, right? And you can often predict their life expectancy in this country. Um, mm -hmm. and, and often zip codes that are only three miles apart from one another will have radically different uh, predicted outcomes, mostly correlated with race. Uh, and the legacy of redlining and, and discrimination in this country, right? That's the country we still live in. Um, we've got ways to theologically speak about this. I think evangelicals and others are often very reluctant to talk about those kind of social forces. But if you go back and you read Augustine, 
and or talk about original sin. I mean, this is the way of like we're born into sin. Like this is the way that Christians have talked about these forces that are already at play even before we take our first breath um, on the planet. Man, you know, this is this is this case knows this is where you light me up, brother. We can go off on a tangent here off into the rafters of theology because this is where I, I I like to say that I thrive. Right. And I was going to say that, of course, I have a, 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 a an issue with Augustine on on, on on that point. Right. Like the East talks about ancestral sin rather than original sin. And I think that's and that's exactly what I was thinking of. I'm, I'm glad you did. The spirit is in this, right? Because you brought that up. And that's exactly what I was thinking about when Robin was talking about it, right? About, about white supremacy, right? That the, or the, the, the idea of ancestral sin is that not that you were born with this sin, like, like, like white folks say, right? I'm not a racist. You know, my daddy didn't own slaves and all that kind of stuff, right? So with ancestral sin, not that you were born a sinner, but you were born with the propensity to sin. Sin had been so slathered around you. You had been raised in sin. Your mother and your father had sinned in their life. They had fallen to sin. Like the culture was tending towards sin. Chances are you're going to sin. <laughs> and the same with white supremacy, right? Like if we all say it's, a, it's not a skin thing, it's a sin thing. It's a sin thing. Yes, indeed. So if we follow that line of thinking, we also understand that it is white supremacy slathered all around us. It is in the air that we breathe. It is everywhere. And so nine times out of 10, if you live, you will become one, not because you purposely decided to become one, not because your mother or father taught you to become one. They may have in some instances that is the case. But simply because you're in a culture that inculcates that. And so understanding that and this is what I was going to get to you, Case, because you talk about the practical, the practical theological ways of unsuturing that you know undoing that so that's why I, I was just about to go go with your thought because i was just about to ask you uh well uh, thank you and and i'll try and say something brief and then I, 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 maybe a follow-up question uh for our guest but um i i'm struck in, in the midst of this conversation um and the focus of you know how, how do we get this information into the system right how do we get change into society particularly the church right like clearly my focus how do we get these institutions to change um you know i'm struck by the fact that in the church when when covid uh, threatened white life we were willing to shut everything down sunday worship um, you know, either stopped or went online, right? Or we closed our buildings, all of the things we said we could never do and all of the things that we were too busy doing to have more time for racial justice, right? All of, all of those other things, right? We were willing to stop those in favor of saving white life during COVID pandemic. And it just really highlights for me that we, we've never been willing to do that when it's a pandemic of, of violence and, and trauma and racial injustice that is killing black and black and brown bodies, right? Like, so just really that dichotomy. Um, and and I've, I've got some ideas, um, and maybe we'll get to them too. I I I'm curious, um, particularly for for Robin and Robbie for your work. As much resistance as you've met, you've got something into the culture, right? You you've you've gotten. 
an idea across this defensive boundary. You've gotten it. And you both are very, very upfront that you are not saying anything new. And particularly your stance that African-Americans, Latinx people have been saying and others have been for generations, right? Like, what about your work or what do you see even in each other's work that got this across that defensive boundary into our culture? I do think that um, what I brought to the table was being an insider, right? An insider to whiteness and then taking all of that mentorship um, uh, I received from black and brown people, both in, in you know my time in, in actual relationship to the work of those who came before me, um, taking that also with some guidance from some white uh, whiteness studies, anti-racist white scholars, uh, and then walking into rooms filled with white people trying to talk about this and always with my own whiteness kind of visible to me in a way it hadn't been before. And putting all of that together and then just articulating something um, in a way that resonated. Um, and again, it isn't that it hadn't been articulated before, but I do think um, the particular language and the fact that it was coming from this position um, and it was harder to deny, you know, it, there's a little bit of a, what I think of as a wink and a nudge, you know, kind of a, hey, you know, and I know, come on, we know um, that Jabriel can't do, right? Right. Um, when he's in front of a group of white people. And so it's harder to deny um, using myself, you know, putting, pointing the finger this way rather than this way uh, helps um, kind of make, make room for people to look at something that they have been taught to believe would make them immoral. Um, th those are the things that I think um, allowed for the impact that my work has had. Mm -hmm. Well, I'll follow on there and say, you know, I, I uh, learned tremendous amount from that. Um, and um, it uh, say, you know, some, you mentioned resistance. Um, I mean, there was resistance to getting the book kind of into a publisher because there was kind of the sense that, oh, you're a white guy. What are you doing writing a book on race? Um, particularly about the church, you know? Um, and, you know, but, but I think Robin had actually plowed the ground and other authors, you know, like her in a way to say, no, 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 this, this, insider conversation is vitally important. That's right. The messenger matters here, if, particularly if you want to kind of go right at it. So I think, you know, my, you know, I, I, I very intentionally began the book. The first sentence of the book has the word I in it. The last sentence in the book has the word we um, in it. So like trying to kind of, yeah, write from we white Christians being in that space. You know, I've got a degree from a Southern Baptist seminary, a degree from a Southern Baptist college. Um, uh, grew up in the deep, deep South. My family goes back six generations in middle Georgia. Um, you know, I know. Like from, Paul, like uh, Paul, man. I, you know, I thought about that, actually. I thought <laughs> I did think about that as I was kind of like laying this out in the first chapter of the book. I thought, man, I, I'm given my, here's my, you know, equivalent of Paul's Jewish credentials. You know, right. I'm kind of lay, laying it out, um, lest he be criticized as some outsider. But I think what Robin's saying is exactly right, that um, more people telling this story from the inside out, I think, is is been really important. Um, I mean, it still doesn't mean I'm sure Robin's had this experience too. Of, of you know, uh, do I still get events uh, 
canceled every now and then uh, because of blowback. Yep, that's still happening, you know, um, in 2021, uh, uh, you know, and, and blowback after the fact uh, that I hear from from folks. But but I, I will say, though, that I, I, I've been pleased to see um, more churches taking this up. I'm actually a little more hopeful um, than I was even when I finished the book in 2019 as I headed into publication um, that, that I'm seeing more these conversations happening um, in, in, in places uh, that I, I wouldn't have expected, um, you know, when I, when I kind of closed the, uh, cl- closed the pages of the manuscript. And I don't know whether you all want to go here, but but then, of course, this invokes the master's tools dilemma. I understand the resentment that people of color feel when, you know, I've been saying that you don't hear me. She says it. Uh, you, you hear her, um, you know, to not use this platform is not acceptable to me. And I understand that it it's frustrating in the same way that it would be frustrating to me if finally, you know, white men began to speak up about patriarchy and white supremacy and suddenly, you know, they were elevated. I would feel a little irritated, but I'd also be like, and thank God, you know, we're inside the system. There's no clean Uh, space. Um, Sister, brother. Go ahead. I'm I'm, I'm a weird one. I'm a weird one because I understand. (laughs) Like Like I told Case, I think it was you I was talking to, brother, when you were talking about some job and, and and people of color were like, no, this is supposed to be a person of color's job. And I'm like, for what? Yeah. We can't be effective in there. Yeah. We won't be, we won't be effective in there. And, you know, I talk about black inferiority a lot. And I told Robbie, I was telling Robbie, I was like, I'd love to see if we can parse the data another way to do like trying to be white too long. Right. Like mm-hmm. like because, mm-hmm. you know we'll get in positions of power as black people and be ineffective ultimately. And when it's all said and done, we'll say that it's because we were black and we were fighting white supremacy. And that's a true thing. There are things Obama couldn't do because he was a black man fighting up against white supremacy. But we also know he is a black man fighting up against white supremacy. And so if we cannot get over that hump, it is better served to have a white person who understands what exactly is going on in that space. I tell Case all the time, you know, people will be willing to hire you before they're willing to hire me, and that's okay. <laughs> unless, unless you're Clarence Thomas, and then you'll be thrilled <laughs> Which I am not. <laughs> There's room for you then. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. If you're willing to shuck so, and jive in whichever form or fashion the master mm-hmm. wants you to shuck and jive, whether it be on the left mm-hmm. or the right, because there are masses on the left and they have people shucking and jive. Just, they just shuck and jive in a way that is more palatable to our tastes and our senses. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I was saying to, I, I do Blacks with Power, and so I was saying to my co-host on that podcast that 99.9% of white folks have never met a free Negro. Mm-hmm. They've met black folks who have to, at some point, submit to master's authority. Mm. And so they're used to the way in which um, non-free Negroes speak. They're Mm. used to Negroes who, or black folks who speak in certain ways, who interact in certain ways, who say things in certain ways, who dance around the the issues, who don't 
step on their air hole, who know not to trigger their white fragility. Mm-hmm. And when they encounter a black person who doesn't do that, oh, whoa. So Can I you pick up you, on that? Yeah, yeah, please. I mean, you know, one of the things that we uh, we talked about before um, that I think connects this to this idea of to Robin's point about stamina earlier in the conversation is I do think that you know many white Christians are looking for a quick fix mm-hmm. here, which also means that they're looking for conversation partners that are going to give them that quick fix, mm-hmm. right? Um, they're all seeking <laughs> out like. Who are, who are the African-Americans or the people of color I can find who will pretty quickly tell me it's okay, right? Um, and that right. we're good. Um, and so that's why I think the frame that many white Christians, even when they've been willing to take this up, has been the frame of reconciliation, right? And, and that that's been the kind of banner that most of the work has, has really um, gone under in, in white Christian spaces. But I think that that's because uh, reconciliation um, often glosses over justice and repair, right? Um, and that, that those pieces are where the harder conversations you're talking about are going to happen and where stamina is the name of the game. And it's not a sprint to the mountaintop of reconciliation. <laughs> it's a long haul through the valley of repair and justice. Amen. Amen. And, that, so, and that's the thing we talk so, about, Case and I, all the time, you know, that, 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 this idea of having reconciliation without repentance. I heard you coming in, brother. Come here. Yeah, it, uh, so many things to go with that. Uh, <laughs> reconciliation, the idea that we can somehow return to a, to a place where we once were, to be re-conciliatory you know, with each other, right? When there was never that reality to begin with. There, there isn't a thing to go back to. Um, and. I guess I, that that's sort of driving me um, maybe even more specifically, right? We talk kind of generally about getting getting your all's insights and information and, and those of um, BIPOC mentors and and teachers and lessons and, and authors into, you know, into the present culture. Um, you know, and then and then we bring the sports analogy, or I think of the sports, but just the stamina analogy, right? I can and white Christians particularly being unwilling to do or change anything. And what would it take to, to make that step? What is called specifically, right? Like, okay, give up white Jesus. We're like, okay, well, we'll put up a, a, a brown Jesus or a black Jesus on one of our slides, or we'll put up <laughs> a, a, you know, an icon of a, of a brown Jesus or a black Jesus next to our white Jesus. And I mean, I think about, you know, endurance athletes who and top level performers you know they they're not you know taking their supplements with their chocolate shakes and ice cream right they're not taking you know the 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 high quality diet with all of the junk food and fast food that there's a sense of of like you guys have said giving up you know getting rid of white jesus um and i'm i'm curious about other specific either ways to get people in the church to do that, or as you've seen, you've been able to get people or have helped people make those kinds of changes or transitions or steps, um, or what other ways you see um, are most important for the church particularly to to shift in, in order to actually begin to build this stamina that we need for this long-term change. 
<laughs> I just think it's it's such a great example of how um, whiteness projects our own, if you want to use language of sin, onto black people, right? Like which, as you were talking about the easy way out, I'm thinking, and we say black people are lazy. <laughs> right. Um, it's it's always a perversion, right? Like like in so many ways, if you list it out the way we think about black people that they reflect back our, to us ourselves, right? That mm -hmm. um, we use black people to cleanse ourselves, to realign ourselves. Um, but what I'm thinking of is, is the culture. I'm thinking about um, Malcolm Gladwell's tipping point theory, right? That you mm -hmm. only need 30% to begin to change culture. And so you, you start to make it so that the person who doesn't want to shift is the one who's uncomfortable, mm -hmm. not the person who's mm -hmm. trying to push for change, which is what it is now, right? Uh, there's a reason that five people heard what Uncle Bob said and didn't say a word. So Uncle Bob got to run his racism unchecked and five people got to be uncomfortable and out of their integrity. Mm -hmm. And we want to create a culture where it's Uncle Bob who's uncomfortable and it right. has to look at his integrity. And and you don't need everybody. You, you won't get everybody. Like that. That's just... You know, uh, you fill with despair if you try to do that. But mm. you begin to build a culture. Um, you know, if you think about congregations in which you've gotten further, it's likely because a larger number of people are with you, and that begins to then influence uh, other people. Or other people just realize this is not a good fit for me here, and that's fine. You know, it isn't a good fit for you. You just are clear. Uh, as clear as you can be about what community they're getting into. So, but it's yeah. like it's mm. like it's like white folks, and y'all can correct me if I'm wrong because I'm not white. In case y'all didn't, in case y'all listening to this online, white folks have been very careful to keep their faith from messing with their society. So. We go to church on Sunday for our own personal reasons. It's not supposed to shape who we are. It's not supposed to delve into our politics. It's not supposed to affect the way we live. That's our mythology, at least. You say what? So that's our mythology, at least. Well, 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 yeah, exactly, exactly. That's what. That's what. Because it gets through in all the wrong ways, right? It, 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 it seeps through in all the wrong ways. And that mythology exists to keep it from seeping through in the right ways. So how do we transcend that mythology such that we remove the gates so that the good which is there can seep through and become pervasive? Yeah, I'll, I'll tackle a couple aspects of this um, about church. Um, you know, I... I actually think that the mythology about church, at least the church that I grew up in, is that it, it, it did, in fact, shape your life. Right. That was the point of it um, was that's the reason why evangelicals emphasize coming to church. I mean, when I was a kid, I kid you not. I mean, I you know, I was at church five days a week and mm -hmm. that was that was expected. That wasn't extraordinary like that. You know, so it was a pervasive institution, you know, from I mean, I was there from, you know, nine to twelve from on Sunday and then again from four thirty to eight on Sunday. I mean, that was a typical Sunday. Uh, growing up, I was there Monday night uh, to visit people who weren't coming that much. I was there Tuesday night for Bible study and Wednesday night for youth group. Okay. Um, you know, and and so it, it did have this kind of shaping effect. But I, I think the challenge mm -hmm. has been that 
that churches have only wanted to claim um, uh, the good, right? Uh, How it shaped people for the good and not claim and not understand it as a human institution, right? That, that always has mixed results. Um, Yes. It it actually inspires people to build hospitals and to feed the poor and clothe the naked and and all those things that churches love to tout. Um, But, you know, one of the starkest findings from my book um, is that, uh, in the evangelical setting that I grew up in, that attending white evangelical churches makes one more racist. Like the data is just unequivocal um, mm. on this, that, that the relationship between white evangelical identity and holding more racist attitudes is stronger among those who attend more frequently than it is among those who attend less frequently. And like, uh, to, uh, I've used this word that Robin used earlier in the, in the conversation um, a lot. I, I think there are certain findings from the book that that I think we just have to sit with. That's the language she used. I, I've used that as a lot as well. Um, I think some of it is like we need to get on and do something, but I, I think a big part of what white Christian <laughs> churches have got to do is just sit with this. Man, Case, uh, I tell you that all the time, brother. <laughs> What's that? I tell Case that all the time, right? He's always like, what can we do? I'm like, do nothing. Just do I mean, nothing. It's, it's, it's going to take, I mean, I think it's going to take a generation for this to sink in. Right. For to really be part of the consciousness of the church. Um, and, and so I think that's part of is letting it seep in, let it get into those small crevices. Right. And kind of find its way down to the foundation is really, I think, part of the work, um, you know, that, that we're that we're that we're doing. We've got to and we've just got to, you know, the, the thing, you know, Martin Luther King saying that, you know, the most segregated hour of the you know country is 11 a.m. on Sunday morning. That's still largely true. Only 85% or 85% of America's churches are still monoracial uh, churches. And that's if, even if we only set the bar at 20% non-majority race, right? That we only get to 80, 85%, wow. 85% of the churches are still monoracial. So we've got a, a long, long you know, way to go here. Yeah. Um, and it, I think, and, and it set it as a, as a journey, right? And not a quick destination is really important. Yeah, 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 yeah. We we can't we can't sit with it. White folks can't sit with it. That's what goes back to Robin's work, right? Because yeah, that fragility yeah, yeah. won't let you sit with it. Because if you sit with it, you might find out something that questions your identity. And we can't have that. So I can't sit with it. The best thing for me to do is to do something about it, to show that I'm actually compassionate in this. Yeah. Can I just say one more thing? There, I mean, I you know, I'm sure Robin had the same experiences, but I mean, there were moments when I was writing this book. That like even as somebody who sat with this, you know, I, I know the state inside now, and it's part of my day job. It's what I do for a living. And there were moments when, like when I when I got clear on that finding about uh, going to church, making one more racist. I mean, I had to walk. I I remember writing the conclusion to that paragraph, and I had to get up and walk away from the computer, right? Had, I, because it shook me. Um, you know, as somebody who cares about the church, as somebody who grew up in the church. Um, and, and as critical as I am, that shook me. Right. And, and I think that's part of part of, Mm -hmm. and it's scary, right. Mm -hmm. To come up against those Mm -hmm. moments where you look in the mirror that clearly, uh, and you don't like what you see. Um, and, and, but, but, you know, to not avert the gaze, like that's, that's where faithfulness is, I think. Yeah. Yeah, you know, so many white people think that they're they're just going to easily see their anti-blackness and their in in their, you know, internalized white supremacy. And if they don't see it, then they don't have it. And, you know, they expect it to be this explicit, you know, message of 
black inferiority and white superiority. And, and for you know, some of our families, it, it is an explicit message. But for me, the most powerful way that I've been socialized into white supremacy is through segregation as valuable. It is the way that white people measure the value of our spaces by the absence <laughs> of black people. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. That the the fewer black people, the more black people are absent from that space, the higher it is in value and status. Because it's more that purely every American. That I live, love, work, play, create in segregation. I am being deeply reinforced in the message that there is no inherent value in an integrated life. I was never meant to know or love Gabrielle. Mm -hmm. right? I was never meant to see his humanity except in the most superficial ways. Mm -hmm. Segregation is the loudest message of all. And every time we talk about primarily white environments in glowing terms, we're reinforcing that message that there's no inherent loss to us in segregation. So I'm just wondering if, you know, spending that much time in a very segregated community is is amplifying that message that we're already getting in school in media and everywhere else and now we're going to the place that is said to be the height of our moral training <laughs> and it's segregated yeah yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. and mm -hmm. you know and some of the biggest fights along with those fights over the community pools uh were i mean a story that came out in my own research was um a, a family story i didn't know and that was that my grandfather was a deacon at a Baptist church in Macon, Georgia uh, in the early 1960s. And one of his jobs on Sunday morning was to stand on the front steps and make sure that no non-white person entered the sanctuary. <laughs> like literally that was his, not, not just a wink and a, wink, wink and a nod job, that was his official task from the board of deacons. Um, and, and they would swap out, but the idea was to keep those sanctuaries protected white only spaces, right? That, that was a big part of the battle um, there's a quote from um, uh, 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 one of the commissioners in, in the Jackson City Council is, is saying, look, if, if segregation comes uh, to Mississippi, it's going to come through the front door of the churches. Our, mm -hmm. our de if integration comes, sorry, if integration comes to Mississippi, it's going to come through the front door of the churches. And that's why they fought tooth and nail to keep those spaces segregated. And, 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 and for any white person yeah, listening that, right now mm -hmm. saying... You know, we don't do that anymore. We do it in many other ways, right? We can't be expecting it to be as blatant as that. But I was just listening to people talking about the shooting in Colorado. And of course, here we go. It, it is inevitable. Somebody must say that doesn't happen here. Mm -hmm. So so where does it happen, right? Uh, where is it supposed to happen? And, 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 it and it's supposed to, to happen it, here. It's to that point, right? And this is why we can never be sure, right? Because we, we will say... You know, it, it, you know, we don't do that anymore, as you said. And that is always the excuse, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But I've never had anyone be able to show me where you have intentionally undone mm. what was done. Mm. Mm -hmm. And so if you have not intentionally undone what is done, it's always like a dormant volcano. Mm -hmm waiting for the opportunity to, to erupt. We know it's going to erupt. It's why we could have we could have predicted that January 6th was going to happen. We've seen this before. 
all of the necessary ingredients were there. And we know that we had not done anything intentionally to undo that sickness. So we knew it was going to erupt. And so, no, we yeah. don't do that anymore. But how do we get people to undo it, Robin, Robbie? How do we get white society to intentionally undo it? Well, what we have to be careful of is this idea that you just add people. Okay. Uh -huh. um, this is what a lot of institutions do. Let's go get some and right. add them. Right. <laughs> um, and what we are not recognizing is we're adding them into what I see as hostile water. Because if we have not addressed the consciousness of those who control that table, who've always controlled that table, and let's be honest, it's up to them whether you even get to get added to that table. If you aren't simultaneously working on their consciousness, what, the way you put that is undoing all of that history that's led to their current consciousness, you're just adding people to hostile water and then you're wondering why they don't stay. <laughs> So, right. So it's a it's a simultaneous process of institutional, you know, institutions aren't people, but people make up institutions. Right. And and so many just stop at, you know, the addition approach. I mean, I, I would say, too, just um, the other thing to kind of keep in mind, right, is that if we haven't undone the theology, if we haven't undone the liturgy, if we haven't undone the sermon, you know, sermonizing and the kind of sermon tactics um, and forms, um, it lives on, right? That's what institutions do. They perpetuate themselves over time, right? And, so, and to this point that, that if we don't want to um, have our own children born into that, right, we have to undo it, right? Otherwise, to be passive, we are just recreating that in our kids consciousness the mm. thing the very thing we said we don't want to have right so i think it takes some very intentional um you know deconstructive work I, again that i think is it's a work of a generation right but but and, and even i'll say this even if you think of yourself as a conservative which i think this is where i get i think a lot of religious people get caught up right um the job of uh, someone who's a conservative right is never to conserve everything Right. Um, the job of sort of being a faithful conservator um, is to sort of take what's been given to you uh, and faithfully analyze it. Right. Mm -hmm. And decide what's worth keeping. And that is if, it certainly that's true if we believe in sin. Right. It means that nobody ever got it right. And our job is to look at it by the best lights we have, decide what's worth keeping, what's worth jettisoning and what's best to hand down to the next generation. Like that's the work of a conservative. Right. Even if you think of yourself as, as a conservative, there's a there is a dismantling white supremacy job for conservatives to do, um, you know, in this moment um, in order to not infect, you know, the next generation hey. with something that I think was not legitimate in the first place. Unless, of course, we're saying that white supremacy is worth conserving. Right. But I think we, we have to be saying that. Right. Um, and I'm hoping that's one of the things that this moment we're in, this moment of reckoning is forcing the choice. Right. Uh, that right. we have to sort of say that out loud. Right. To do nothing means that we're really are literally hanging on uh, to these things in the past and saying, yeah, they're fine by me. Yeah. Wow. Um, maybe 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 a question that, that can find us a landing spot and a wrapping up point or, or not. I don't know. Maybe just open another can of worms. Right. Like. Um, 
the the tension of wanting to do and and needing to sit right? and even even feeling my own discomfort at like a generation right like this is generational work and how many people how many more people are going to die and suffer you know over the course of that generation and having to sit with that even in the acceptance um and and these the push and the and the the try to make change I'm, i am encouraged Robin, by your reminder of of how a, a relatively small community right can really can shape change um and find hope in that um you know some of my own exploration right now is around um around not doing right it's around excommunication of of um ceasing in this case for anglican episcopalian ceasing to receive holy eucharist as um as a central point of our worship until we can find some way uh, to address robin i think what i've been trying to do is take uh what continues to reverberate in my brain from from your work of um of that value system right of how we show our value and applying that to theology that says you know we've we've said that that this is not only okay to god this is this is celebrated by god what we have here and what we have here is a complete segregation a complete devaluing of of black and brown my friend and working in ways to get um to undo that and address that value disparity and so i'm curious particularly for the church um you know how how far do we take the in this moment, how far do we go uh, in in stopping? How far do we go in not doing? Um, you know, I'm I'm at the point where I'm ready to advocate for stop Holy Eucharist and having service that is totally different for for Episcopalians, right? Like trying to address this this, um, this way that that Sunday morning worship just rules everything and leaves no room for justice, right? Like. I'm curious how far you think we we should go, and and how far do we go to stop, and what do we stop? So just checking, Robbie. Do you have an immediate response? Um, sure, I could jump in. I mean, you know, I, I, I want to say that um, when I was echoing the kind of sit with it thing, I don't really see that. I know that that the the immediate image that comes to mind is maybe you're you know meditating on a cushion or something, but <laughs> I, I don't actually think of sitting with it as a passive um, mm -hmm. activity, right? Despite the the semantics uh, of, of the phrase, um, I think it can be quite active, in fact. And I, I think doing things like, you know, Lenten practices or, you know, the kind of practices you're talking about um, with, with, uh, with the Eucharist are ways of keeping it present and sitting with it. Right. I mean, it doesn't mean that we have to be passive. We don't that we don't do anything I also think we can move in and out of kind of more overt advocacy work that needs to be done and then internal work um, that also needs to be done. I don't think we can walk and chew gum at the same time. And in fact, I think those things feed feed each other. Mm -hmm. um, so my mm -hmm. emphasis on sitting with it, I think sometimes we need to do some pretty active stuff in order to keep ourselves in that space. Right. And, and I think that's really um, important. And sometimes the moment just demands it, right? I mean, the 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 moment and and the, the demand for justice just demands us acting. And so I, I don't want to kind of go from that. So, so I know we're trying to land the plane here. I'll, I'm I'm going to close though with two things um, uh, that I think are from from Biden and Baldwin. 
um, that I that I have found helpful um, on this critical mass uh, thing and, and Glad Gladwell's tipping point. Um, one of the most I think moving things I found from from uh, Biden's uh, uh, address, inaugural address, was this phrase he used. He said, "You know, we've always, even in, in tough times, Americans have found enough of us to bring the rest of us along." And I think that's kind of like the moment we're in. We're looking for enough of us to bring the rest of us along. Um, and that's how we get to a new place. And, and I, I have to say, I'm, I'm hopeful that we're, while we haven't reached that critical mass by any means, that we're building toward it, toward this place where there'll be enough of us uh, to bring the rest of us um, along. Um, and, and then I'll, I'll close with just this, one of my favorite quotes from, from Baldwin, um, where, you know, he, he at, at large, it mostly did not give up hope, um, you know, that we would be able to get there in a country, even though he knew there was a lot of bitter work to be done, um, uh, you know, and, and um, you know, and he said, you know, if we can find the strength and courage and love to do that bitter work, um, then uh, in his words where we can end the racial nightmare, um, we can achieve our country and we can change the history of the world. Um, I still deep, deep down um, believe that. Um, I do think it's going to be, a work of a general, we're undoing, you know, more than four centuries of white supremacy, right? It's not going to be something that happens quickly. Um, but, but, I, but I think there's work, meaningful work to be done now um, and, 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 and enough work for a whole generation of, uh, you know, faithful Americans, citizens and Christians uh, to do. And because, because wow. we, we've talked about landing the plane twice now, and before I before I hand it to uh, Robin to to put down the landing gear, I'm gonna do my bag of Vance thing. And I told Case I'm his bag of Vance, right? I help him pick the right club, and I just stay off in the background. And so uh, I, I, I gotta I gotta have a circled back for this landing approach, right? Because um, I I, I want to make sure that I draw out your question. I'm gonna put my word. I'm gonna put words in your mouth, brother. I'm a, I, I want right. to make sure that I right. draw out your question the way I think it needs to be drawn out. <laughs> and so when, when we talk about how far should we go in, in stopping, when you ask how far should we go in stopping, I want to be clear that one of the things that Case talks about, it, like he says, excommunication, what in using the tools of the church, I had another another person talk to me about the potentiality of, or, the, or the necessity of an exorcism in, in, in white Christianity. Mm. Um Robbie, you and I connected off of this idea of de-white Christianization of the church. Um, in, in terms of the tools of the institution, when we talk about the church, and this is what makes the church different from any institution that may be engaging in this work. When we talk about the church, the church supposedly has tools. You know, Lord Acton in his essays on freedom and power talked about um, coming out of the Middle Ages and the divine right of kings and things of that nature that Europeans needed to learn that divine right of kings was not a thing, that that was the prescription, he says, quote unquote, that was the prescription for the malady that affected Europe at that time. And the question of what is the prescription for the malady that affects whiteness at this time is something that is a particular preview of the church in its tools for shaping society, whether that be excommunication, whether that be, you know, um, exorcism, whether that be, you know, liturgical processes, what, you know, how far, so when, when I hear your question, brother, the way I want to hear that question asked <laughs> mm -hmm. is, mm -hmm. is in employing the tools of the church and what makes the church something special. 
how far do you feel need, the church needs to go in in writing that prescription um, for America in these times? All right, I'll do one quick take oh, yeah. on that. I'm going to hand it off to Robin. Coming at me a different way. Look, I, I, like I think in, in some ways, uh, what would happen, for example, if white Christian churches took an entire liturgical year focused on white supremacy? So as we move through the text, as we move through the liturgical seasons, through Lent, through Easter, Epiphany, Advent, um, you know, what would it mean, right? And how would it change things if we took an entire cycle, right, to say, we're going to kind of go through our, go through the world this year with white supremacy fully envisioned uh, in our, in our wake. Um, and, and, and how would it change what, what we did? Um, and, and that would include, by the way, uh, the annual budgeting process, right? Uh, that's mm -hmm. not liturgical, but mm -hmm. uh, is important. So what would happen if we had that in mind as we figured out where our budget, you know, was going along with what we were doing in our, in our services. And uh, it just everything, just made everything shot through with like this lens on how to tackle and attack white supremacy um, in, in our midst. I mean, it would be a game changer, right? If, if we could do that and, and we can even use the, you know, use the tools that we've got um, beyond that. I mean, I'll just say, like I, I said a lot um, too, that I think it just comes down to, the truth is, it's, it's not that complicated. Um, uh, those would be tools that I think would be really useful. But I think the the other truth of the matter is, if we if we just got serious, and I, I've kind of tried to boil it down to this, if white Christians got serious about telling the truth and loving their neighbors, that would pretty much do it. <laughs> right? All right. Well, um, I'm not religious. <laughs> Um, I know that's why I'm waiting on your answer. That's why I'm waiting on. <laughs> I don't even identify as spiritual, just for the record. Um, so I can't speak to those specifics. Although I did love Robbie's answer, that seemed pretty radical. You talk about how far that 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 would be pretty far for for lots of uh, institutions and communities. You know, when people ask, and this is the number one question I get whenever I give a talk, is how do you get other people to see this? Um, and I have two responses. One is just to pause and look them in the eye and say, well, how would I get you to see this? How would I tell you about your racism? Mm -hmm. And my point in that is that it's always about somebody else, right? When I ask that question of how do I, how do I tell Case about what he said? Um, I'm, I'm assuming that, you know, I'm, I'm good to go. I'm not part of the problem. And the other, the other thing that I think is embedded in that question of how do we do it? Again, we're talking about getting other people to see what we're hoping that they see is what, what we're really asking is how do I do it without having to pay any price at all? How do I do it and remain comfortable? How do I do it without risking anything, without losing anything? Because we know how to do it. You just you just say it. You just live it. Um, and so when I think about those moments, I think about doing it for my own healing. This is for me. This is not to, I hope as a result, you are touched and changed. Amen. But I have to break with my conditioning into white supremacy. And, and I have to heal those places. And I have to do that by uh, taking these risks. 
no matter how scary they are, um, no matter how inelegant I am, no matter how much I'm shaking, um, I'm going to do this for me so that when I go to bed tonight, I, I am in my integrity. For me, um, moving that always back to myself rather than those outside of me is is powerful and for whatever that's useful in the context that we're talking about it i, I hope that it is amen amen yeah definitely it definitely always comes back to the self i think i think that goes back to what robbie was saying earlier in terms of the self-interest that's how i view the self-interest that you talk about robbie that until it matters to me enough where I am willing to risk, where I am willing to pick up my cross and follow him, where I am willing to put it on the line. You know, um, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a wax uh, biblical in a, in, in a second, but I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not a Southern Baptist brother. So I don't have chapter and verse. I, I, I was raised an Episcopalian brother. So I don't have chapter and verse. You lucky. I even know where the Bible is. <laughs> but it, it, I was just reading today, you know, as we get ready for, 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 for Palm Sunday, as we get ready for Holy Week, you know, and it's interesting. We talk about Palm Sunday and, you know, it just just to watch Palm Sunday, how we usher the Lord into our lives so quickly. Hosanna, save now. We willing to take our cloaks off our backs, throw them on the ground for the Lord to have a donkey trot over them. Hosanna, save now. And no quicker did we ask him to save now. And we find out that he's going to upset the status quo in our life. Then we turn around and we like crucify him. Give us Barabbas. Woo! <laughs> we don't know who this Jesus person is. But in Isaiah chapter 50 or 51, I think in the Western Bible, I may be wrong. It may be 50 as well, but I think it's 51. Chapter verse four, the Lord gives me the tongue of the learned so as to know when to speak a word at a fitting time. And he causes my ear to listen each morning. The Lord's instructions open my ears. And I am not disobedient, nor do I contradict him. I give my back to whips and my cheeks to blows. And I turn not away from my face from the shame of spitting. The Lord became my helper. Therefore, I was not disgraced. But I made my face like a solid rock. And I knew I would not be ashamed. For he who pronounces me righteous draws near. Who is he who judges me? Let him oppose me at the same time. Who is he who judges me? Let him come near me. Behold, the Lord will help me. Who will harm me? Behold, all of you will grow old like a garment and old age will devour you as a moth does a garment. But for some reason we hear that brothers and sisters. We hear the Lord is on our side. When Easter come, we say in the Ethiopian church, Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by his death and upon those in the tombs bestowing life. The Lord has come to bestow life. So why, why Western brother and sister, why do we loathe to repent? What is wrong if we repent? If we acknowledge our sin, and repent. Didn't the Lord already tell us that it will be well with our soul? Do you take him as your at his word? You say the word is infallible, sola, you know, sola scriptura, only the word. So is the word infallible? Is the word fallible? Because the word has said that if you confess your sins, it will be well with your soul. 
So why hold on to the faith of your fathers and your mothers, brothers and sisters? Why hold on to a faith that has not brought us any closer to the beloved community that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has promised? Why hold on to a faith simply because we think it has given us the society that we have? No matter how good this society becomes, brothers and sisters, this society will never be the kingdom of God. It may come close. It may smell like it. It may even taste like it, but it will never be the kingdom of God, brothers and sisters. So anything else, can we can sift through it. It is okay. We can sift through it like Robbie said. And we can see what is, what is of value here and what do we... Should we throw out and what must we throw out? If you read their work, White Fragility, White Too Long, if you read their work, you will see what it is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has called on you to throw out. And in this holy season of Lent, my brothers and my sisters, where we are called to strip ourselves of the dross, that we may indeed shine with the love of Christ. Let us endeavor to gladly strip ourselves bare because in the fall, brothers and sisters, Adam and Eve grabbed some fig leaves and they wrapped themselves so they could be not ashamed. In our redemption and our restoration to the Imago Dei in which we were created, we will be naked and unashamed before our Lord and our God. So strip yourselves bare. Now, hopefully none of you hear this the wrong way and go out streaking anywhere. That's not what I'm talking about. But strip yourselves bare. That before the throne of the Holy One, he may see you and approve. That's what we've been invited to. That's what, that's what I see in their work, brothers and sisters. Extending this invitation to you. I see them inviting you. Even though Robin swears she's not a spiritual person. That's what she tells herself. But for some reason... The spirit of the Lord has her and I always in communication. So I don't know. Maybe she just hasn't realized how spiritual she is yet. <laughs> but I, I, I invite you to see the call that they are making to you, brothers and sisters. Not just to read it as information, as something you say, oh yeah, this is nice. But that it becomes something for you. Amen. Amen. Thank you both All right, so brother, much. I got to make one last comment here. Go ahead, brother. Maybe Episcopalian, but that rivals any invitation I've ever heard a Baptist preacher make. <laughs> Is that one? <laughs> Thank you, brother. <laughs> we appreciate everything. Uh, you both taking so much and giving so much of your time here. Um, again, for all your words and uh, wisdom and insights that land have landed in particularly our church, and hopefully we will heed them as a human frail institution. Thank you so much uh, for being here and for, for being willing to chat. Brothers and sisters, keep them in your prayers. Keep them in your prayers, you know, that the Lord protect them every time you think on them. If, if they come on your mind, if you read their work, if you quote their work, just say a little prayer because they could use it. Thank you for listening to Racial Heresy. Be sure to visit our website, racialheresy.com, to post your questions, comments, and feedback, and to share your own stories of life as a racial heretic. 
Want to hear more? You can find past episodes of Racial Heresy on iTunes and the Racial Heresy website. Want to hear even more? Invite Racial Heresy to speak at your conference, council, church, training, or event. Email us at ebonyandivory at racialheresy.com or visit our website for information on speaking engagements.